Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. And today we're going to complete our series on the issue of can women teach, preach, be in leadership in the church? This series we've been uh, looking from the scriptures and we have saw that women in the Old Testament and the New Testament especially, they can take positions of leadership in society and in church life. You know, this is consistent with the character of God. God has clearly gifted some women with leadership qualities and abilities. Would he then deny them the opportunity to use and express those gifts? That would be cruel. No, the giftings and the callings of God go together. When he calls someone, he gifts them with the ability to fulfill that call. And therefore, God does call some women to leadership in the workplace and in the church. Let's, let's start today by just looking at some examples from the New Testament. Let's look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, in John chapter 2. She was actually in charge of that whole wedding feast, and that would have included having men under her authority. Jesus acknowledged his, her authority in that situation, even over him. Let's look at that in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. We'll see that she was the most important guest and the main organizer. She was in charge. She knew more than the others the true state of things, the inside information. We see that in verse 3. It says, when they ran out of wine, now that would have been a secret, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This was a major problem. It would result in great shame for the couple. Mary must have said this with a hidden push. You, Jesus, you need to do something about this. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? The King James says, what have I got to do with you? Which really sounds rude, doesn't it? My hour has not yet come. Well, his words here are hard to understand. In English, it sounds he's disinterested. He's kind of saying no. He's kindly, you know, he's basically pushing her away. But that can't be right. When you see what happens next, what does she say next to the servants? What does Jesus do next? He does the miracle. So that can't be the right explanation because he immediately goes ahead with the miracle. So something else is actually going on here. It's important to understand the Hebrew phrase here for woman. This wasn't rude. This was a term of respect, even honor, affection. When he said, woman, what concern, what does your concern have to do with me? It literally is, what to me and you? What to me and to you? What he was doing actually is saying that the situation was under her authority and it was not for him to intrude. He was saying it's, it's not his business, it was her business because she had authority. What he was telling her is unless she delegated authority to him and released him to work, he didn't have the authority to act. Her hint and her look to him was not sufficient for him to act. He was a man who worked under authority and he had not been given that authority as yet. When he said, my hour has not yet come, you know, whenever he spoke in that language, he was talking about the time when through his death and his resurrection to, and his ascension, he would be exalted as Lord over all. But that time had not yet come. He was still a man under obedience and he respected the authorities around him, including Mary's authority.
at this wedding feast. The time would come when he was Lord over all, but at the moment, it was not his time to rule. He hinted that he could and he would help, but she was the one in authority. She had to give him authority to act. And that's why Jesus said, what to you to me? In other words, it's up to you to give me the authority. Mary got the message because of what she said next. What did she say to the servants? Verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. That shows that she was in authority. She commanded the servants and she said, whatever he says, do it. In other words, I'm delegating my authority to Jesus now. Do what he says. That shows she was in charge. She delegated the authority. And because Jesus functioned under authority, as soon as he was given permission, um, he worked the wonder. He turned the water into wine. You know, you have authority over your own life. Jesus has the power to turn your water into wine, but it can only happen when you give him the right, the authority to do it. You see, when you call Jesus your Lord, you give him the authority to save you. And that's why the major preparation for this miracle was the, about the giving of authority to Jesus. When we call him Lord, his spirit enters into the clay pot of our humanity and turns our water into wine. He breathes into us our et eternal life. He fills us with his spirit. This sign was given, you see, that we might believe that Jesus is the one that can transform us. But we must receive him as Lord. But what I want you to see here is that Mary was in authority over everyone in that wedding feast. She was in charge. And she was a woman. Well, also in the New Testament, we see Philip's four daughters were prophetesses, Acts 21. Just imagine having to have four prophetess daughters in your house. You just get up, have breakfast in the morning, and they're prophesying. They're telling you the dreams they've had last night. They're preaching to you. You know, that, that would have been quite tough sometimes, I expect. Then in Romans 16, Paul lists over 20 fellow workers in the ministry, in his apostolic teams, very, very many of them. And nine of these were women. Philippians 4.2 mentions two more women in his apostolic team. He says, I implore Eudia and I implore Sinchi to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me with the gospel. This is language that they were fellow ministers and preachers with Paul. Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. These weren't just... Um, people kind of helping him in natural ways, they were fellow workers and laborers in the gospel. Fourthly, Phoebe stood in the office of a deacon. She was actually entrusted with the vital book of Romans. And in Romans 16 verse 1, Paul says, I recommend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant. Now this translation immediately gives away the male bias of the translators. This word diakon, our servant, um, is translated 22 times in the epistles. Every time it refers to an official position of ministry in the church. 18 times it's translated minister. Three times it's translated deacon. Only one time it's translated servant. Why? Because it's a woman. <laughs> and it says, she, really it should translate that she is a deacon of the church in Centria. And so this word... Deacon or diakonos was used of Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Tychicus, Ephraphus. They're all, all preachers, ministers. Um, 
you know, if it was a man, it would have certainly been translated deacon. And although she was a woman, Phoebe uh, was a woman, the word deacon is a m masculine word, meaning that it can only mean that she was actually held the office of a deacon. Her authority can be seen very clearly in verse 2. He's, Paul says, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need, whatever she may require of you. For indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Here again you see the male bias because this word helper is the word prostasis and it literally means one who stands in front of. Uh, it it's, should be translated a, a leader a ruler, a front-ranked person, one who exercises authority. It, the verb is always used of leadership. And so here is a leader in the New Testament church. Then in this same list is Priscilla and Aquila. That This was a husband and wife ministry team. In v verse 3 it says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives. Um, and he says, Greet the church that's in their house. So the interesting thing here is that the woman's name, Priscilla, is mentioned first, indicating she was the leading one as far as the ministry was concerned. In Acts 18, when Paul met them initially, Aquila, the, the husband, naturally was named first. But after that, in Acts 18.18 18, and 2 Timothy 4.19 in Romans 16, she is mentioned first. And they led a church in their house. They were pastors together and she was probably the leading light. Um, we're told in Acts 18 as well that they both taught, both of them taught, the great teacher Apollos. So how could it be that if God has forbidden women to teach in, uh, a man, that she taught Apollos, the great Apollos? Then again we have Junius in this list, verse 7, who's not, who is not just a deacon, she's an apostle. Um, not just an apostle, but an outstanding apostle in verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junior, my countrymen and fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Speaking of her seniority, she's almost certainly a woman. The early church for the first thousand years and more recognized her as a woman. Now, she's also an apostle. Um, there are apostles apart from the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They are sent ones, they're like missionaries who pioneer, who preach, who plant churches in new territory. Over 20 are mentioned in the New Testament. And here we see a woman can be an apostle. Well, if she can be an apostle, she can be anything. Likewise, in recent church history, we know of many such apostolic missionaries who are women. Going out to the front line, preaching like Gladys Elwood, Mary Slessor, Amy Carmichael, Jackie Pullinger, just to mention a few. How inconsistent it is for the Western church to be happy to send them to preach, teach, start churches, uh, lead churches, as long as it's in a different continent. But when they return, they're not allowed even to stand in the pulpit because women are not allowed to teach or preach. Other greatly anointed women preachers and teachers are Catherine Booth of the Salvation Army, Amy Semple McPherson, who started one of the large Pentecostal denominations, the Four Square, uh, Catherine Coleman, one of the greatest recent evangelists. Of course, everyone knows Joyce Meyer. Are we saying all these women of God are false, out of order, because women aren't allowed to preach? That's absurd. What about some objections? What about Jesus' 12 
apostles. They were all men, weren't they? He chose all men. Well, you can't base anything on this type of argument because, for example, they're also all Jewish. Does this mean that all ministers must be Jewish? No. In his specific situation and time, for all kinds of reasons, it was right and wise to choose 12 Jewish men as the founding leaders. But there's no command or hint here that it always has to be that way. Secondly, another objection might be that elders and deacons are always male, aren't they? No, they're not. The word for female elders is used in 1 Timothy 5.1, but of course the translators translated it as elder women. When, uh, then when deacon uh, or overseer is used for an office, um, it's used as a masculine word. But the office can be occupied by a woman. We've already seen that with Phoebe. So clearly deacons can be women too. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, an overseer, which is like an elder, he desires a good work. Doesn't it say that it's got to be a man? No, it doesn't say that. Actually, again, the translators, uh, in the King James at least, have changed the word. Actually, this is if anyone, and it signifies male or female, uh, desires that position, he desires a good word. And then it gives a list of qualifications, and it is applied to a married man with children. He must be blameless, husband of one wife, and so forth, hospitable, able to teach, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, and so on. Now, if this is saying that the overseer must be a man, and it doesn't say he must be a man, but it gives the qualifications. If it's saying he must be a man, it's also saying he must be married with children. But that would exclude the Apostle Paul himself. It would exclude even our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, that is not Paul's intention. The issue here is character. And there is no command here against a woman or a single man being an overseer. You see, often scripture refers to a man or men or brethren even, in, for example, in the greetings to the churches, when clearly that word actually encompasses men and women in view. To continually address men and then to say the same thing to the women separately which has to be unnecessarily complicated. Then in verse 8 it goes, likewise deacons must be reverent and so on. And we've seen with, with uh, Phoebe that the office of deacons includes women, even though we're not explicitly told that here. Then verse 11 is very interesting in this list of qualifications. It says, likewise their wives must be reverent, not slanderers and so on. But actually, the Greek literally says, the women, the women. The translators, you see, have assumed it is the deacon's wives because they didn't believe in deaconesses for a start. However, let's look at the structure of this passage. There's a parallel between verse 8 and verse 11. In fact, there's a three-part list here. First, in verse 2, it says, a bishop must be. Then in verse 8, it says, likewise deacons. Then it says, likewise women. In other words, the structure of the passage, Paul is actually saying, I'm bishops have these character qualifications, the deacons have these character qualifications, and just in case you think I'm talking about men only, 
Likewise, women, women bishops, women deacons must also satisfy character requirements. And he was indicating by that that this must be applied to women also. Okay, somebody might ask, what about, can a woman be a senior pastor? Um, what's our position on that? Well, again, I have to point out from the scripture that this is not forbidden. Uh, for instance, there may be many situations where there is no option. Uh, somebody on the mission field who starts a church, a woman missionary, she needs to take that authority. The Bible does not say she cannot do that. Um, you know, basically I would say it's the best person for the job. Now, you know, some may object that this is um, not ideal. Um, for example, the only argument I can think on this line is that the church is like a spiritual family. And just like the ideal is for a man to be the head of a family. So maybe the same for a spiritual family. Maybe that's the ideal. But I would also, if you're going to argue that way, I would say it's also not ideal to have male-only authority. Because in a family, it's, it's a husband and a wife, ideally, who are in, in authority there. And by that analogy, men and women should be in the leadership team. If it's male-only, it's unbalanced. It's, it's not ideal. Um, but again, it's not forbidden for a woman. I don't object to the proposition. I, I believe it's the best person to, for that situation. And sometimes that best person will be a woman. I don't object to the proposition that most often the best person will be a man, where, you know, that, that for natural reasons, as I've already pointed out. But what I would say is the Bible does not forbid it. Okay, well, we've got one more passage of Scripture to look at that is a difficult passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that's relevant to our issue, and it's the passage on head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16. Let's see what this tells us. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And, and we've seen this before, but he's saying there is authority here of a woman, of a, of a, of a man being over a woman. We've already argued the fact that this should have been translated, that the head, it literally says, the head of a woman is the man. It's a parallel verse to Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, which clearly says the head of a wife is her husband. That's what it's talking about. There is an authority, but it's, as with the other scriptures, it's talking about the authority within marriage. And so he says that there is an authority as we, in church and in marriage, the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman, or the, the wife rather, is the, her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, every man praying or prophesying, having his head, un head covered, dishonors his head. Now, this is um, a tricky passage because you've got Jews and Greeks here with different principles and different practices. The issues here are, is there an authority in marriage? And how do you display that authority? The Jews very much believed there was an authority in marriage, but that was a repressive authority. The, the woman was dominating. 
The Jewish man wore a covering on his head to show that he was separated from God. Um, the Greeks, on the other hand, many of them were like, more like women's lib. They didn't have any idea of authority and they didn't uh, wear coverings. And they were all having different traditions. And Paul was saying, what is the answer? And the first thing he does is he establishes the principle, the principle that there is authority in marriage and that that, that, that authority is to be shown by a covering over the woman's head. Let's have a look at this. Um, it says that every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head. In other words, he says it's wrong for the Jewish men to cover their head in church. They should not wear a covering or a hat or anything in church. Why? Because in Christ now, that barrier is removed. Um, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The man dishonors his head, which was Christ. But the woman dishonors her head. What's the head of a woman? It's her husband. Or if she's unmarried, she'd be living at home and it would be her father. But she doesn't dishonor all the men in the church because she's not under their authority. But if she doesn't have her head covered, she dishonors her man, her husband, her head, you see. It's talking about marriage. But it, it says, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. She's saying it's as if she went into church with no hair. You, that tells you there's something wrong there. Um, for a woman is not, if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. For it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, then let her be covered. He's establishing the principle that since the woman... Uh, the wife is under her husband's authority. She should show that on her head. All right. Then it says, a man also, indeed, ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman, who, by the way, is the image of God and glory of God, but she's also the glory of man. Not just any man. She's the glory of her husband. She reflects something of his um, love and his commitment to her. And so she's his glory. And so she is to show that, her submission in her marriage, by a covering on her head. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Um, in other words, there's an order again from Genesis 2 that should be shown in that marriage relationship. He is not saying that all women are under the authority of all men. He's talking about marriage. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Again, marriage. The w woman is not created for all men. She's cr for her husband. For this woman, oh, this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. She ought to show that she is um, in right relationship with her husband. She's under authority. The angels are sensitive to these things. They're sensitive to rebellion because of Satan's fall. Nevertheless, he puts the balance now. Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. In other words, men and women are together. They're equal partners in the Lord. For as woman came from man, so also man comes through woman. But all things are from God. So he puts the balance. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? What's he saying here? He's saying a woman should have a covering on her head. But now he's starting to talk about hair, hair length. 
Why are the two covered? Why are they two together? Because the hair, as we're going to see, is the covering. And for a man to have long feminine hair, he is essentially saying he is, he is the feminine one. He's the submitted one. He's wearing a covering by his long hair, and that is wrong. He's not to be covered, and he's not to wear his hair, long hair, as a covering. But the woman, on the other hand, she is to wear a covering. And how does she do that? She does it through her long hair. It says, if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. He shouldn't be wearing a covering. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What's Paul saying? He's saying, yes, a woman should be covered, but she doesn't have to wear a hat or a veil or such artificial thing because God has given her her glorious hair for a covering. The word there is anti. It's instead of a covering. Yes, a woman should be covered to show her femininity, to show she's submitted to her husband, but that hair, God's given her that feminine hair as a covering. What's Paul saying? He's saying men should look like men, women should look like women, and they show that primarily their masculinity, their femininity, by their hair. There shouldn't be any confusion in that area. It, that's his conclusion. If a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. Her hair is given to her for a covering. So Paul is affirming that God's order in marriage and that it should be displayed through her feminine hairstyle. And a man also should not wear hair like a woman. He should wear his hair in a masculine way, which will be shorter. And then he says, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom that you've got to wear a hairpiece, that you've got to wear a hat or some kind of veil. There is no such custom in the churches of God. What does that mean, ladies? If you want to wear a veil, if you want to wear a hat, that's fine, that's okay. But it's not necessary because it, God has given you your hair, your lovely hair, as the sign of your femininity. Men, you are not to wear long, feminine-type hair. You are meant to look like a man in church. Neither are you to wear a hat or any kind of covering over your head. That is not appropriate for church. The angels are watching. They are very sensitive to authority, that we uphold authority that is God-given.